Hey, Boris. What's up, team? Both the U.S. Navy and the Soviet fleet went out hunting for the Red October in the movie we watched for today's episode. But really, what are they doing about the military threat posed by the November rain? I mean, have you seen the rows of guns on that thing? Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security for a living. And I'm in Las Vegas this weekend, so no Gabe. He is recovering from a trip from the North Korean-South Korean demilitarized zone. And that sounds like a joke, but he literally just got back from a tour of the Joint Security Area, and we'll have uh, to have him share some of those stories when he's back on the podcast. But I'm not just some lonely soul wandering around Las Vegas by myself uh, like Nicolas Cage and leaving Las Vegas. I'm here with my friend Boris, an old classmate of mine from D.C. who now enjoys the life and weather of the Bay Area. Boris, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Tim. It's great to be on this. A huge fan, obviously. And this will be an amazing episode of the show because I'm on it. (laughs) Excellent. Well, I know we gave you a shout out on our Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull episode. You did a little... Russian language spot checking for me. So I appreciate that. So we're happy to have you here in person. Uh, In a way, you could say that you hunted me down and insisted that we watch the 1990 movie, The Hunt for Red October, a story about a disenchanted Soviet nuclear submarine commander looking to make a connection with an up and coming CIA operative. If they can just avoid being hunted by the US and Russian navies, they might just learn to trust each other, exchange some gifts, and finally go on that long talked about fishing trip. Boris, you uh, you insisted upon this movie. What was your impetus for this? Is this a movie you've enjoyed? Absolutely. Um, I've been a huge fan of uh, Ta- Tom Clancy now for several decades, let's say. And uh, I do think that this is probably the best screen adaptation of the, uh, Tom Clancy's book that was uh, that was done to date. Well, they got a good team of people working on it. From the director, John McKiernan, who did pretty good movies like Die Hard, Beverly Hills Cop 2, Predator, Last Action Hero. They got a good team of people on this, including some of the big actors in this movie. Not only the big two, you know, Alec Baldwin as Jack Ryan and Sean Connery as uh, Marco Remus. Marco Remus, yeah. Yep. Uh, I'm going to call him Conrad Connery throughout the rest of this. (laughs) Other than that, they have a ton of really good supporting cast people like Scott Glenn, one of my favorite actors. He's another one of the things we covered on this podcast, The Leftovers. He plays a, a central character in that TV show. But then you obviously got you got Darth Vader in this. You got James Earl Jones, all this good stuff. So it's a it's a pretty good team. And it's also written by Donald Stewart. It partially helped on the screenplay. And he wrote some of your other movies you talked about, the Tom Clancy book adaptations like Patriot Games and Clear and Present Danger. But you like The Hunt for Red October better than any of those? Absolutely, yeah. I think this is uh, probably the best Baldwin, the best uh, (laughs) uh, post-Bond Connery. So you definitely get some of the giants of the big screen in there, in in some of the more meaty roles where they get get to chew the scenery, so to speak, and uh, are successful at it. And uh, obviously... uh, 
there is uh, there are also additional actors uh, in, in the, uh, to uh, to what you mentioned, such as Sam Neill uh, is on it, so Mr. Jurassic Park uh, himself, well as Tim Curry makes an appearance, and um, I do apologize for not remembering uh, her name, uh, the woman who plays Beverly Crusher in Star Trek: The Next Generation. She does play play the wife of uh, Jack Ryan in this movie as well. Oh, so, okay, well, yeah, she's in the movie for like a split second. Uh, I did some research and I found out that there were a lot more scenes filmed with her and they ah. all were left on the cutting room floor before the uh, before the movie got its release. So unfortunately, yeah, that's okay. uh, sometimes that's the way it happens. Well, the director, according to the special features I watched on the DVD that I rented out from the library, uh, he said that he was really worried about adapting this particular book because there's a lot of content. It's a pretty long book. There's a lot of detail. I guess these Tom Clancy books, they're just filled with little details here and there. He'll take pages and pages to describe like a paperclip and where they got the paperclip and what the paperclip could be used for. It's it's kind of like the way George R. R. Martin describes food in uh, the Game of Thrones books. Um, so he was worried about adapting that. So I'm personally worried about adapting the movie into a hopefully not a three-hour podcast here. Um, but as you mentioned, you liked this particular movie. I don't think you're alone in this. Rotten Tomato gives it an 86% rating. Roger Ebert liked it. He gave it 3.5 out of 4 stars. Called it a skillful, efficient film that involves us in the clever and deceptive game. And on a $30 million budget, this thing pulled in $200 million worldwide. Back in 1990 when this movie came out, that's a lot of money. That is indeed uh, a lot of money. So uh, that's... Uh... I think that speaks to the uh, high artistic uh, aura <laughs> that uh, that this movie displayed. Well, it, let's <laughs> let's get into this here. Let's uh, let's run through the plot. And as we're recording in a the not our usual podcast studio, we're recording in a in a Las Vegas hotel room. Let's make this a little more casual, similar to the Ladybug Ladybug episode from a couple episodes back. Uh, we're going to call these the nuclear fireside chat style. So we're going to casually kind of talk about the plot. We'll inject some nuke stuff into it here. Uh, and then we'll kind of ease into our rating system and things at the end. So people that haven't seen The Hunt for Red October, that haven't read the book, uh, this thing came out in 1990. You should probably get around to eventually seeing this. But spoiler warning, we're going to get into the plot here pretty deep. Uh, so let's dive in, shall we? Submarine pun. Aha, Tim. Good one. So the movie starts with some opening narration text on the screen uh, as the camera kind of goes across this like war game style map. Of, of the world and it says November 1984 shortly before Gorbachev came to power a typhoon class Soviet sub surfaced just south of the Grand Banks near Nova Scotia then sank in deep water apparently suffering a radiation problem unconfirmed reports indicated that some of the crew were rescued but according to reported statements of both Soviet and American governments nothing of what you are about to see ever happened that's it's a pretty good way of starting us off here, but very mysterious. What is and, going uh, on? Yeah, very mysterious, and uh, plus those uh, uh, large uh, caps, uh, green letters on the on the yeah. black screen. That's uh, yeah, that's something. You know, you're in for something here. Absolutely. So, what do we open on? We open on Sean Connery's eyes, cold and hard. He's on top of a submarine traveling above the surface near a Soviet sub-base. Yep, and uh, above the Arctic Circle. So uh, as, uh, some of you may know, uh, Murmansk, uh, um, the large uh, Russian port city in the far north, that's where the Gulf Stream actually ends, where it begins ah. from the Gulf of Mexico. So that uh, it's, uh, I believe, 
I'm not 100% sure, but let's say I'm 95% sure that it, it, it is the uh, port that's farthest north in the, uh, in the world that is open uh, year-round, so it's, it never ices over. Well, that makes sense that Sean Connery's uh, cold and hard character would be traveling against the current. Oh, yes. That's what he seems to be doing in Indeed. this movie. This is a particularly dangerous time for submarines uh, when they leave their bases, especially we're going to have a different couple names here. They talk about these in the movie, like the people watching it don't really know anything about submarines, which is probably very reasonable. Uh, but they refer to things like boomer submarines, attack submarines. The two big categories here, boomers are the ones with the nuclear armed missiles. They're the ones whose that... primary mission go underwater when they get the order to launch, get above water, put their missiles into the air. And they're the ones that go boom, right? The, the big ones, yes, exactly. <laughs> and there's attack submarines. Those are faster. Uh, sometimes they're a little bit smaller. They usually have more torpedoes and arsenals and things like that. They go after other submarines and they also protect the boomers uh, as they're leaving their base. So it's a very vulnerable time. Because the U.S. and the Soviet Union and the Russians today, we're always tracking each other's mm -hmm. submarines. We want to know where they are. If they leave a base, you know, we're watching that base with satellites. We're watching that base with attack submarines in the area. Mm -hmm. So it's a very dangerous time. So usually uh, these submarines, when they go on patrol, sometimes they'll go out late at night when it's, when it's darker. They'll go in stormy weather so that satellites and other uh, submarines can't track them. Usually they're accompanied by patrol escorts, minesweepers, and the occasional anti-submarine helicopter just to see what else is in the area, and they try to avoid them. But particularly out of that base, unfortunately for ge no, constraints of geography, this base you have to travel a very particular path before you can get out into open ocean. And usually right when you get to open ocean, there's a U.S. attack sub or two. Not really waiting to attack, but just like, hey, we know where you are. Yep. Uh, so that's one thing that kind of as this movie starts, uh, you have to be careful if you're the Russians. There's someone going to be waiting for you on the other end. Yeah, and that's uh, just as you uh, very astutely pointed out, due to the constraints of the Russian geography, there are only a few ports in Russia that were equipped to be a real large-scale submarine base, right? Uh, you have Murmansk uh, in the north. Uh, there were some uh, bases in the Far East in the, near Vladivostok and Nakhodka. And then, obviously, the port at uh, Kronstadt near St. Petersburg, so where the Baltic fleet and the Baltic fleet subs were uh, uh, were located. And uh, those were basically the uh, the U.S. had the advantage in that it could park a few subs off of each mm -hmm. uh, port and uh, rotate them on and off. And that would have basically an advantage over the Russians in, uh, in tracking the subs from the get-go. And we'll see that later on. Uh, the USS Dallas attacks uh, pretty much picks them up right as they get out of the port. But we don't get there yet. We enter, I guess, the private personal study of Alec Baldwin's character, Dr. Jack Ryan, who is a CIA analyst. I, in, in a couple of the different movies, it's unclear if it's like a James Bond thing where they don't build on each other, but it's this is the adventure of James Bond at any particular moment. Some of the different movies have different origin stories, like Some of All Fears. He's like a very fresh CIA agent. He wrote a report about this one Russian politician who then ended up being president, and that's why he gets brought up to the big league. Here, he just seems to be in London reading books about naval history uh, and writing stories about naval history, and he sees some sort of uh, pictures as a CIA analyst. I guess he can take these things home with him. He doesn't have to, <laughs> to read them in a secure facility or anything. <laughs> and you can see his likes and dislikes from uh, his early scenes here. He likes collecting toy boats and books of, on naval history. He likes wearing turtlenecks. And he likes mansplaining turbulence to a flight attendant 
when he gets on an airplane, which leads into his dislikes. He really hates flying. He does not like turbulence. And he doesn't like leaving his daughter Sally in London without telling her a bedtime story. So that kind of gives you a sense. He's this mix of he's a nice guy in a way because he's a good father. He wants to be around with his kid. But he's also kind of a jerk sometimes because he mansplains what turbulence is to a flight attendant who just kind of rolls her eyes. Every 80s action hero there is. Exactly. So he gets on an airplane because he sees something in the satellite imagery. And uh, he gets on an overnight flight to the CIA and explains to Deputy CIA Director James Earl Jones why he got on a plane. And it was because British intelligence spotted the Red October, this really fancy state-of-the-art latest what they call Typhoon-class submarine. The Russians in this movie often describe the submarine as the Typhoon class. That's yep. a NATO designation. Exactly. They maybe probably don't call it that. They have other names well, for it. It's called Project 941. Yeah, for, for Russians, that was actually named the Akula class. Akula in Russian is, is shark. That, by the way, is not to be confused with the NATO uh, Akula class ah. designation. Not the same thing. Uh, the NATO uh, Akula class designation for Russian subs, I believe, was for uh, attack uh, subs also in the 80s, uh, produced in the 80s, early 90s. For that, the Russians called them, I think, a uh, combination of letters and numbers, and I believe they were called Shuka class. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, those are the, in Russian, Shuka means pike. So, pike, okay. Yep, like the fish, pike. So, uh, what we can infer from that is that uh, Russians love their fish. And also that uh, Russians love their fish with large teeth. So fair enough. That's uh, that's some high level analysis for you folks. <laughs> I was really confused. The Russians when we start calling our submarines like Ohio and Virginia, they're like, no, name them after some sort of aquatic beast with large teeth. Exactly. Fangs. Yeah. Uh, so this submarine is a big deal because it's a big sob, as it's described in the in the movie. It's three meters wider, twelve meters longer. Than the previous typhoon submarines, it's bigger than even the ones that are in our real life world. So this it's kind of a big deal. And you may ask yourself, hey, it's a submarine. Why is bigger better? Usually you would imagine quieter better. Uh, I looked this up. I got this cool book called Strategic Weapons. It's a 1988 book, so it's kind of fun. Even though it's dated, you know, intel-wise, it's a good description of when this book was written, kind of what the, the sense uh, was for these submarines. It's written by Max Vollmer. Uh, he noted that the missiles on the Typhoon were moved to the front of the fin or the Coning Tower. Most of those tend to be behind the Coning Tower, and they moved all of them up to the front. And they, the idea was either it was because the propulsion machinery for such a huge vessel was so large and heavy that it needed to be in near the stern, so it needed a lot more room for it to operate. Uh, some people also thought it was because this type of submarine was used in breaking through icebergs and underwater hmm. parts of the Arctic travel. So those you would need things positioned and you need the ship to be a little bit bigger. But anyways, the U.S. and NATO in the 1980s freaked out about how big the Typhoon class was compared to their own submarines. Mm-hmm. You know, the Red October in the movie is named that way because of the October Revolution of 1917. That's Wait. how it's described. Which, by the way, happened in November, but was called the October Revolution because Russia was at that time and still on the Julian calendar, ah. which means that uh, everything is essentially two weeks back. So just like the Russian uh, Orthodox Church celebrates Christmas on January 7th, I believe, okay, uh, instead of the Western-style December 25th, 
that's uh, there's your answer. So that's uh, so great. October uh, Revolution did not happen in October. So really, the U.S. should be calling this the Red November, just to, uh, exactly, just yep. to mess with them for their absolutely, yeah. Code name it the Red uh, the Red no- uh, November and uh, see how that designation uh, uh, ends up, just yeah. like with Aquilas. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so this captain of this new ship, the, the Red October, uh, this guy is a, a big deal. I'm, I'm going to call him. Like I said, I'm going to call him Co- Comrade Connery. I think Comrade, let's go with Comrade Connery because I have no idea how to pronounce his uh, uh, name uh, uh, either. So, yeah, Comrade Connery would be good. <laughs> I know they say it in the movie, but I just got so stuck in my head with Comrade Connery. So this is a big guy. He is like one of the best captains in Russian naval history. So it's a big deal that he's on this ship. And the CIA, though, wants to know, based on these pictures, what are these doors on the side of the submarine? They don't know what it's for. Uh, these aren't screen doors on a submarine. These are something fancier. They want to figure out what it is. So he asked for permission, Jack Ryan, to go talk to this guy, Skip Taylor, who works out in Maryland at a shipyard, a naval shipyard. So he asked for permission, and I guess just to go show this intel, because he's a former uh, naval guy himself. Now we're going to go back to what we mentioned earlier, the USS Dallas, this attack submarine, Los Angeles class. So it's a very advanced for its time submarine, and it's right outside of the Red October. And uh, in fact, uh, you uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it still is. It's still the mainstay yeah. of the U.S. Uh, submarine fleet. Yeah, so. there's, they're getting closer to some new boomers, uh, closer in the sense of the kind of where it was a couple years ago. Uh, but yeah, I think the, L- the Los Angeles class submarine, at the attack versions are still still state of the art. Right. Yeah, I believe there's at least uh, two or three dozen still in service. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot more of those than boomers. Yeah. You hear these great conversations between uh, the sonar operator tech, Jonesy. They call him Jonesy. I think his name is Jones, but we're going to call him Jonesy. And then he's training this uh, kind of fresh out of the academy uh, radar technician or sonar technician. This this guy seems like he doesn't know at all what he's doing. And Jonesy is kind of giving some explanation, some exposition for us about what's going on and but all of a sudden he says he detects a boomer out of the barn and then describes it immediately as a nuclear submarine missile boat out of uh polyarni polyarni yeah like you mentioned boomer equals nuclear missile submarine in contrast to an attack sub like the dallas a barn is a submarine base so the fact that he says boomer out of the barn a missile submarine out of this particular base is kind of redundant it's like if I were to say to you, let's go get breakfast outside, you know, the thing you eat with scrambled eggs and then not inside. Redundant, but it's helpful for the less super critical of the audiences that are out there. Yeah, alas, they did not release a special edition uh, version of the uh, cut of the movie for the um, uh, for the Wonks. Yeah, so, that'd be good. Alas, that, that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, I, I'd pay good money for that. Paramount, if you're listening, just keep it in mind. Yeah, I mean, you'll at least have two copies here. Exactly, yeah. yeah. You have a resume-made audience. <laughs> so back on the Red October, we switch from, at the time, was, I don't know how you would grade the, the Russian accents from Connery and everyone else, but at some point here, they're translating the, the – Comrade Connery is in his personal quarters, and there's the political officer from the Communist Party on board whose name is Putin, Ivan Putin, but still uh, – he, he they're having a little conversation and he's Putin is quoting from I guess a Bible that used to belong to Connery's wife who recently had passed away and he's translating from the book of Revelations uh, or quoting from underlying passages and when they get to the word Armageddon which I guess is the same in both Russian mm-hmm. and English it just switches into English so for the rest of the movie until near the end everything now is back in in English how do you feel about that decision 
Um, I think it was a pretty good decision just uh, in terms of uh, uh, getting people to understand what is going on on the, on the screen. Also, Comrade Connery, as uh, we keep referring to him, uh, let's say that uh, his um, <clears throat> uh, Russian tutor probably tore out some of the hair <laughs> during the um, uh, during those lessons. So, um, and the same with Sam Neill. So, Mona, they don't really they don't try for an accent really too much in this movie. No, no, no nor should they really. But uh, because uh, Comrade Connery's presence by, by himself on the screen, I think, is enough. I mean, he's got the beard for it. He definitely has the beard, even though the uh, at that time, I don't know about now, but at that time, the Soviet Navy, uh, it was uh, forbidden to have yeah. facial hair. Exactly. So it's one of those, this is what we think someone in Russia on a submarine would look like, but... Someone who wanted to resemble Comrade Connery. Exactly. That's what, that's what they would well, look Connery like. Well, Connery almost didn't do this movie because he, he, was, he was sent the script and his agent didn't give him the cover page of when the movie was supposed to be taking place. And this movie came out in a, a period of detente. The U.S. and the, and, the, and the Soviet Union had a lot of trouble in the Cold War. But this was a time we thought, hey, things are getting a little bit better. There's a little bit more cooperative uh, threat reduction. There's some more um, kind of transparency efforts, uh, a lot more conversation and dialogue. So Connery saw this movie, and as the statesman that he was said, this is going to inflame and destroy detente. So I can't possibly do this movie because he thought it was – meant to take place at the exact same time when this was happening and then the the director i think said oh no 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 it's in the past it's like 10 years ago mm. and then connery said oh okay great i was going to take what he called a golf holiday in scotland he wasn't going to do any movies and he said okay fine now i'll now i'll do it and that <clears throat> that that's what gave us this masterpiece exactly so we all have to thank uh comrade connery's um change of heart yep it's i appreciate his like statesman-like attitude towards mm. what movies he picks. Right, yep. Now I have to go back and look at all the movies he did and what maybe he helped or didn't help in international <laughs> affairs. Because he certainly was happy. Uh, That's a dissertation a waiting for someone. Well, he so was, if you're he listening was, to He was certainly willing as 007 to go out and attack in the Soviets on any number of occasions and stopping their plans and stuff. But, but the, that was also in the 60s and there were also some beautiful women involved. So who knows understood. with Comrade Connery. Understood. Well, so Connery uh, is he's talking about this Bible and the passages. Uh, and I guess there is a quote that is written on the side from the famous doc, doc, uh, Robert Oppenheimer, where he references the Hindu Bible. I don't know if it's sacrilegious to write Hindu Bible passages in a regular, maybe Russian Orthodox Bible. He wrote down on the side the uh, what Dr. Oppenheimer said after seeing the Trinity nuclear test, the first nuclear test, I have become death, the destroyer of worlds, which is not something that the political officer is too happy about a, the captain of a nuclear boomer saying, because it seems like maybe he's not interested in his in his job. He's underlining passages about the end of the world. Connery makes this, I think, a pretty funny joke where he says this was an American who said that, and he was later accused of being a communist, which is exactly what ended up happening. Right as Oppenheimer was getting pretty close to retiring, uh, due to him being described as a communist by his political enemies, he was stripped of his security clearance. It was a big uh, series of public hearings about this, and a, pretty embarrassing for the guy, because largely he was part of the reason they did that was because he didn't necessarily have a change of heart, but he was trying to say, now that the World War II is over, let's try to calm relationships. Maybe we'll build a thermonuclear hydrogen bomb. But the political officer doesn't think that joke's funny. 
so Sean Connery. Political officers never do. Well, Sean Connery, after reading the orders that he was given by a strategic submarine forces commander, which told them basically, you're going to go rendezvous with this this other uh, captain, Captain uh, Tupolev, mm-hmm. Tupolev, uh, who was a student of Connery back in the day and a hard man. Uh, they were going to run some drills and they were going to hunt the Red October, which is hey the name of the movie, and they were going to see how good the submarine was. Well, the political officer didn't laugh at Connery's joke. So what does Connery do? He um, basically strangles him. Yeah. Kind of cracks his neck, strangles him, uh, and then pretends like the guy tripped on some tea and he passed away. And he then takes the real orders, burns them, and replaces them with his his fake orders. At this point, we're not really sure what's going on here. He either could be trying to steal the submarine, trying to do do a rogue attack. I don't know. We don't really know what it is just yet. All we know is that he has a, a command of the submarine and uh, no one else to com- to countermand the orders. He's the man now, dog, you could say. Uh, so Jack Ryan, we go back to the shipyard in Maryland. Uh, he's there with this guy, Skip Taylor, who's adding a rescue sub to another sub. So I guess remember that it's like Chekhov's rescue sub. You see it at some point in the f- in later on in the movie. And uh, he's Tyler notices the doors. Uh, Jack Ryan asks what they are for. They're too big for torpedoes. He referenced what's called twin screws, which is submarine lingo for the propellers. Jack kind of asks the question, are they could be for horizontally launching ICBMs? And really what it is is what they call a caterpillar drive. Uh, I don't know if this is a real term of art or it's just one they made up for the movie, but it's some kind of magnet, hydrodynamic drive propulsion thingy that is the equivalent of silent but really like jet engine fast uh propulsion system they says that it gets to the point where if this is working the propulsion system will sound like whales like it could no differences between the submarine and background noise yep basically so so, submarine runs silent submarine has what 30 uh 30 uh, slbms and yeah that's pretty dangerous stuff very dangerous Uh, skips like hey they can come right up to the coast of the united states and launch everything, and we wouldn't even know what they were there. And he, he talks about the story of his dad having him dig a fallout bunker in their backyard during the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's the stage, I guess, that we're set for here. But we're going back to the Red October, and what happens on the Red October? We have a Tim Curry sighting. We have Tim Curry sighting. No, um, no fishnet leggings involved here. <laughs> However, we don't know what's under his uniform. Well, yes, I never know. That's uh, yeah, that's part of the mystery. Uh, so the um, uh, obviously the scene here is that they are uh, trying to figure out whatever happened to the political officer, uh, Mr. Ivan Putin, and uh, Comrade Connery uh, obviously says that he slipped on some tea, uh, died the poor sap, and that uh, he uh, and that uh, as the uh, holder of, uh, of the second missile key, Comrade Connery should now take the the other key and keep it for uh, to himself as the uh, chief chief battle officer, chief mm-hmm. uh, commanding officer on the uh, station and uh, uh, comrade curry which is a very weird thing to say but let's call him <laughs> comrade curry the, I love the ship's doctor. comrade curry is my favorite type of curry it's very uh, exactly yeah very blistering and very rather hot red um <laughs> comrade curry um uh, tries to basically uh, uh, tell comrade connery that uh, perhaps he should keep the uh, the second key and to uh, so as to keep the uh, launch authority uh, command with two separate people, but uh, Comrade Connery is having none of it. In this world, it is similar to what I think a lot of people think about when they think of how do nuclear weapons go off. And a lot of people think about, they've heard of the two-man rule, 
You see that in movies like War Games, where there has to be two people separated by a certain distance. They both turn a key at the same time. That way, one person can't do it. Mm -hmm. So I guess according to this logic in the movie, there's a political officer and there's a military officer. And they both have launch keys and they both have to turn the keys either for it to go off or or to get codes or something. It's funny in this world that there isn't a procedure for what happens when the political officer is incapacitated, whether it's because of an an injury to their neck or maybe they just have constipation from eating too much comrade curry or something that there isn't like a an order of operations like a line of succession. You would imagine there would be something like that. Like this isn't a problem that they haven't thought of yet. You know. But Process analysis is a very uh, deep field, so maybe the Russians at that time just didn't get around to it. However, the other thing that I wanted to point out is that this is not the uh, sole uh, portrayal of such a system. I believe in 007 uh, GoldenEye, the, there was a similar uh, oh, yeah, si- the... system yeah, for lunch and, the, the, for, uh, lunch and Petya, the, the satellite. So um, I think that's just a fascination that maybe American... Uh, uh, Hollywood screenwriters have with the way that Russian uh, launch code systems work. What is the truth? Uh, well, what is the truth? Let's do what we normally do on this podcast, which is take very good movies sometimes and and nitpick the heck out of them. Oh, yes. So this is total movie nonsense uh, based on what I think uh, at the time they were mirroring the U.S. system and the public's understanding of how these weapons would actually be used and how the, what the process would be. So this is the real history of, of our, our world, not the, the Hunt for Red October world. So starting in the early 1970s, according to Pavel Podvig, uh, who is a, a brilliant analyst for the Russian strategic nuclear forces, uh, his according to his book, which I'll quote at the end of this episode, he says that the authorization codes needed for a submarine's missile control and guidance systems began to be transmitted in those early 1970s period with the launch order over lines of communication with the strategic missile armed submarine. The strategic weapon control and guidance system thus became more centralized. To interpret that into common lingo, there is no key. You get the launch codes and the unblocking codes, the codes you would need to actually fire the weapons. Those are transmitted to the submarine from the launch authority, the, whether it be the, the political government or the military, the general staff. So from outside from the outside submarine. outside the submarine. Someone on the submarine can't fire them until they receive those codes themselves, which is very different than the U.S. system where the, there's still codes and authorization and things like that. But uh, you'd have to – you know, the key system at least kind of opens up and starts the process there. So the Soviet submarines basically uh, starting in the 1970s could not go rogue per right, se exactly. in that – I, mean, uh, I assume that they would be able to fire torpedoes and the non-strategic yep. uh, weapons uh, at will, but the uh, for the boomers, the, uh, the SLBMs, inaccessible unless they receive the electronic transmittal of those codes. Exactly. And this is rooted inherently within how the Russian command at the time saw what they wanted the, to be the separation between the local commanders and then the political military leadership at the top. So according to another great book with a great title, The Logic of Accidental Nuclear War by a former ICBM launch officer, Bruce Blair, in contrast to the U.S. system, the, quote, overriding aim of the Soviet command and control system was preserving firm operational control from the center while ruling out aberrant actions and ensuring that the top of the nuclear command and control system retained reliable negative control and at the lower level echelons of the hierarchy lacked the means to assert positive launch control. Negative launch control, this is me again, 
Negative launch control is people that shouldn't launch, can't launch. Positive control, people that can launch when they're told to. So that's kind of the two the way, way system here. It's a hard to have a combination of those two things because if the people that need to launch can't, they, they don't have they have to be given authority from say up the president. If you take out the president, they no longer have the ability to launch. So in a crisis, do you give those people who actually have the weapons pre-delegated authority? According to all of this, the Russian system didn't have a version of this during the Cold War. A message to the submarine uh, would be transmitted over low, high, and very low radio frequencies would issue uh, either two commands or a combined message, issuing first the permission to use the weapons, and then second, a direct command of where and when to launch the weapons, and those would contain unlock codes and a launch code word. And those, all those would be the things that they would need to physically launch. Usually these two codes uh, were issued, one from the general staff of the armed forces for the submarines, chief of staff of the Navy, mm -hmm. uh, the CINC would issue this. So Tim, what would you say the uh, this tells us about sort of the uh, overall um, civilian or military control over, over these uh, weapon systems in the two countries, comparatively speaking? Well, I think it definitely signals uh, a sense of like insecurity from the leadership, the top Soviet leadership about kind of what the all the various people with, within their military on the lower level, the people who actually have the fingers on the button and they can launch things. I think there was a concern that orders wouldn't be received correctly. There was a sense of wanting to control, to, you know, as you would imagine, to centrally plan right. not only the economy, but also the military activities itself. And I don't think it also reflects a little bit of, you know, this is hard to tell at the time of the Cold War. There was always a sense in the United States that the Soviets were just about wanting to, the only thing holding them back from invading conventionally in, in Western, into Western Europe or starting a, a first strike of a nuclear conflict was the overriding presence of the United States and its ability to maybe respond quickly. I don't think that necessarily was as strong. There were a lot of problems within the Soviet Union that we didn't learn about until after the Cold War of missile commands and the readiness of the military. So I think the larger concern for them was an accidental launch, an unauthorized mm -hmm. launch, and that priority was uh, higher than pre-delegating things for flexibility and speed uh, later on for the actual sub-commanders themselves. Uh, so I think that's kind of, I think, the biggest overriding theme of these two, especially in, in contrast to the United States. Um, but this code that would be issued to the submarine commanders, I think it's kind of fun to what the messages were nicknamed. For the Navy, it was called the Wave. For the Missile Wing, it was called the Signal. And for the Air Force, it was called a Wing. So if you received a Wing, a Signal, or a Wave, you know that something's about to start. That's pretty dangerous. So even before this procedure started in the 1970s, the launch codes were kept in a, the personal safe of the commanding officer of the submarine. Two people were needed to authenticate the orders received from the general staff to launch their weapons. And this is somewhat uh, interesting. It's the commanding officer, so like Comrade Connery, mm -hmm. and then the deputy commanding officer. So not necessarily the political officer. I think it depended at the time. But those were just to essentially those two people would need to, to authenticate the message. Right. But it doesn't have anything to do with a key or anything like that. But here's the thing. There was a political officer on board. I'll give the movie and Tom Clancy, the author of the book, the benefit of the doubt because the Soviet Union liked to tell people that their submarines could launch on their own. So don't even try to, to attack us because our submarines can just do this. They used to release a lot of stuff to the Western press 
about what they could do. Uh, a Soviet general even told another U.S. official when they said, oh, yeah, so we've got keys on our submarine. That's how this works. And the Soviet commander's like, yeah, 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 yeah we got that too. It's exactly the same thing. Um, so what you're saying is that fake news was alive and well during that time. Russian fake news and everything. But the evidence is pretty strong uh, that a, a key might have been needed to operate the firing control system to like turn it on. But there were multiple codes needed to be received from the outside of the submarine. And there's a lot of evidence you can kind of delve into. This is one of those things where I'm okay with giving them the benefit of the doubt because the authors and the screenwriters at the time they were mirroring what they what they thought was true of the U.S. and kind of what they heard in the press, but it wasn't necessarily how it worked. So the important thing to know is that's what we thought at the time, but we know better now, right? Oh, the, there could be a lot of people who the, who could be let off the hook on that one. <laughs> the... uh, all right, so Comrade Connery, let's get back to the plot. Mm -hmm. uh, he's addressing the Red October crew, and he gives this great monologue, right? Do you want to? Yeah, I'll try to do Comrade Connery accent. I don't think I'm uh, quite able to pull it off, but uh, let's roll with it. Once more, we play our dangerous game, a game of chess against our adversary, the American, American Navy. For 40 years, your fathers before you and your older brothers played this game and played it well. But today, the game is different. We have the advantage. Now, it reminds me of the heady days of Sputnik and Yuri Gagarin, when the world trembled at the sound of our rockets. Well, they will tremble again at the sound of our silence. The order is, engage the silent drive. Aye, sir. Balance control. I love that. Uh, so according to his fake mission, um, he tells everybody, if they're going to conduct missile drills off the coast of the United States, off the coast of a major U.S. city, and then they're going to go to Havana for a day in the sun. Not, not, a, not a bad billet, right, for somebody? Yeah, and, and, and you can hear definitely the sailors cheering uh, when the captain says that. And, uh, and singing. Yeah, so and singing the, uh, the Soviet and uh, the, the Soviet national anthem. And uh, the, that Soviet national anthem is now the Russian national anthem, albeit without the words. So, <laughs> uh, anyway, so the, the, uh, as we can all see from that, whatever goes around comes around. So let's cut back to the USS Dallas, who's mm -hmm. been tracking the Red October. They're, they're right behind him. They're like, "Wow, this is a big, a big sucker!" Uh, but we're, we got him. We're following him. It's our job. They engage the Caterpillar propulsion system, and. The Red October just vanishes. Vanishes from the sonar. From the sonar. sonar. Yeah. And Jonesy's like, wait, let me reset everything. I'll try to figure out what's going on here. Uh, but it just kind of like disappears. He says he thinks he can hear singing in the submarine, which is a little nonsensical. Not really. Yeah, we don't not, have that ability. Um, not yet. <laughs> or at least it's, uh, it's not. Um, it's classified. Yes. The Red October just disappears, and we don't really know what's going on there. Uh, I think I'd like to inject a little bit of uh, interesting real-life spy stuff into this here. So I know you heard of this story before, but John Walker, the, it's, it's one of the biggest cases of espionage in U.S. history, uh, in particular the worst, one of the worst cases for the U.S. Navy. Uh, John Walker had a really long career in the U.S. Navy. He had one of the top clearances. He served on a nuclear-armed submarine. He was actually even part of a patrol when they did uh, what's called Starfish Prime. It's a code for a, a big nuclear test where they tested at high altitude, in, essentially in space. But at some point, he became disenchanted with the Navy. He ran into some money problems. In 1967, he took some photocopies of some classified information. 
he drove from Norfolk, Virginia, up to Washington D.C. And I've done that drive a lot. It's a it's a long drive. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, drive to the pine forests on the peninsula. And yeah, then, uh, yeah. And he basically walked right into the Soviet embassy and said, "Hey, I've got some documents. I want to make some money. Let's make it happen." What um, do the Soviets do, uh, knowing that they are? That uh, at that time leadership was cons- kind of conspiratorial and uh, just not really trusting. They think that oh hey that's uh, the, it's a spy just, here. Yeah. yeah exactly. They're they're trying to figure out who within the uh, within who within the embassy is uh, is undercover as a as a KGB operative. But um, apparently he somehow I don't know exactly how, but he convinced them of his. Uh, it just happened to be that there was someone on the in the Soviet embassy who was a naval nut, and had a lot of like knowledge and would track this stuff and he looked at the documents and he said these look legit (laughs) they brought it back and they analyzed a little bit more of it and they gave him a down payment like i don't know like two thousand dollars or something um to to hold on to the the big thing is twice a year over 18 years he would go to a drop-off point and drop off documents just essentially like in in a soda can like in this like abandoned ill area he would drop off film that he would take photos. The, the Russians gave him this fancy little micro camera mm-hmm. thing, and he would take photos of all kinds of documents, uh, military codes. He was involved a lot with like crypto uh, messages mm-hmm. and things like that. He would also so he had access to some pretty sensitive some uh, good information. Stuff. A of, yeah, a lot of older stuff, but mm-hmm. still some really good mm-hmm. stuff. That I think the Russians said, "Don't give us anything new, because then your cover is going to be blown." But give us some recent stuff, and our people can figure out what's going on here he recruited some others including his son to help him out eventually he he left the military he left the navy and then thought he could do more work spying as a as like a contractor Mm -hmm. for the navy and things like that he eventually got caught when his ex-wife turned him in to the fbi um, because he was so much enjoying his spy life he was very neglected at, at home but one of the most important things that he leaked was how the u.s navy at the time was able to very, very well track pretty much every Soviet submarine due to a particular feature of their propellers that weren't built correctly. They were producing a signature sound by the baffles, which is, mm-hmm. you'll hear this in the movie too, uh, when a propeller spins, it produces a sound and, and bubbles and waves and stuff. They were noticing a signature that they could detect for miles and miles and miles and miles on these sub- Soviet submarines through their hydroacoustic, the US mm-hmm. hydroacoustic water detection system. So they noticed this, and then when the Soviets found out, hey, all of your submarines are being tracked, and here's why, they went out to go to try to fix that. And it Mm -hmm. got to the point where Secretary of Defense uh, Kasper Weinberger said that through this process, the Soviet Union made significant gains in naval uh, warfare attributable to that spy ring. Access to weapons and sensor data and naval tactics, terrorist threats— surface submarine and airborne training readiness and tactics so it's a pretty big loss and mm-hmm. this led the soviet union to go go out and get better equipment to make quieter propellers now uh, i think that this uh this happened in like the late 60s and throughout the 70s mm-hmm. correct so the john walker was called in the early 80s right right uh, give or take so yeah the, he started the, in 67 so, and he, and he mm-hmm. worked for about 18 years yep. before he was caught so that this is not the typhoon class that we're talking about we're talking about the previous exactly. uh, uh the previous class of the uh soviet submarines yeah but this uh i think you can say that the story here is somewhat based off right. of absolutely of kind of what it would be like if our, we can't track the submarines mm-hmm. anymore. One of the things I deal with a lot of work uh, are export control rules. You know, if you want to export something, 
from the United States or one of our partner countries to somewhere else, you're supposed to have export controls. Is the person that you are sending this to the right person that's actually going to receive it? So maybe you're North Korea and you want a particular type of machine technology, but it's banned because it could also be used to make weapons uh, that are that are banned, mm-hmm. uh, whether they're nuclear or, or conventional weapons. You try to hide that. You right. say, oh, no, it's a company in Singapore that's going to get it. And then it gets shipped to Singapore. And it then re-exports it. Yep. Right. Or anything like that. It's two companies, uh, one which we know very close, Toshiba, a Japanese-based company, and then another company in Norway that I can't pronounce. I won't even try. They bypassed their government's export control system because they were being directed by their shareholders to increase profits and export sales. They shipped this precision CNC machinery to essentially model and shape and create propellers. They shipped that stuff over to the Soviet Union, which enabled them, now that they knew what the problem were, they got technology and, and blueprints on how to make better propellers and get created a yep. quieter submarine. Uh, the U.S. government was furious. Well, a senator, Jake Garn, said, quote, we really need to hurt Toshiba, like go out there and, and cause some uh, tariffs or something. We have to punish right. Toshiba for what they did. And that was in the 80s when U.S. and Japan oftentimes yeah, were issues. at uh, loggerheads over trade policy as well. So obviously that played into it. Exactly. But here's here's where the problem is. It's this all this stuff is real. It's all based in mm-hmm. some real life situations. But the movie exaggerates how important the propulsion system is for a quiet submarine. It's incredibly important. A lot of the noise that's produced by submarine is based on the propulsion system, whether or not you have a caterpillar like system that's quiet, or if you have, you know, screws, propellers. Mm-hmm. It's only one of several factors. Uh, a lot of the times when people are a sonar technician and you're looking for sounds, you listen to the reactor making noises because there's some nuclear reactors are a lot quieter than right. way quieter than a diesel submarine. But there's still vibration still produ- produced, right? right. And the, that vibration transmits into the water surrounding the submarine and that can be tracked. Exactly. Uh, they, they, we do things like uh, the hole, the outside of the submarine, you can coat it with some sound absorbing material, some kind of like rubber tile. That's another thing that we that people do to make their submarines quieter. Uh, this is something I didn't know a lot about. I'm still trying to enjoy to read more about this, but there's floating decks, isolated decks, so that it's not one single piece that can creak and make noises. They are individual pieces that overall are pretty quiet. They absorb sound. Those are one of many factors that are right. important about a submarine. You can run at zero and don't move with no propulsion system, but if other things are running you can still be detected, especially how close the Red October was to the USS Dallas. They were saying it's like 4,000 yards. According to one source I read, that's like a knife fight range for how close submarines can get. So they would have heard something. something yeah. But then you wouldn't have a movie, right? You gotta uh, keep up the suspense. Exactly. All right, so let's go back to the Red October. Uh, we have this cool visual effect shot. And I love that, actually love the visual effects for this movie. It's all done with little props, like uh, scale models, mm-hmm. essentially. And it, it couldn't film it underwater because it doesn't, that doesn't look good. You can't really photograph that that well. Yep, so because you won't see anything, right? Exactly. That's how submarines work, right? Uh, but what they did instead was uh, had like smoke. So everything that looks like water, it's essentially a smoke. And then they added a few little bit of post-effect stuff. Uh, but here's what the submarine looks like. You mentioned earlier it's got 30 SLBM submarine launch ballistic missile doors. These launch tubes. Normally, the actual Typhoon has 20 in real life. This one is even bigger than that. And I was like, wow, that's crazy. I'm going to pull out my calculator and see if the math would work out of having 10 additional 
uh, SLBMs based on how big they say it is compared to the existing Typhoon class. And the math checks out. So congratulations to you. To Tom Clancy on this. Exactly. Uh, so here's how it works. So the Red October has 30 SLBM doors and is 12 meters longer than the real life version, which held 20 of these RSM 52 SLBMs. That extra 12 meters would allow for 10 more launch tubes or two rows of 15 in total uh, because each missile is 2.4 meters long. So those extra 12 meters equates to exactly the amount of distance you would need to add the, uh, ten, the 10 additional SLBMs and the extra three meters on either side of this larger weapon is also exactly the type of size you would need. So I don't know why, but that's a fascinating little detail that they include in the movie. So I don't know if that comes from Tom Clancy or if it comes from uh, Stuart who wrote the movie, but either way, I was like getting ready to pounce on a nitpick <laughs> and I said, oh, I will, I will, I will seed this round to you, sir. Right. Uh, all of the naval advisors and the Pentagon advisors that were used uh, uh, that were used by the uh, production company during the movie yeah. they come in handy. That helps sometimes. Yep. All right. So what you how, how about you direct us through what happens next? Uh, sure. So the next uh, uh, part is we are in the command headquarters of the Soviet Navy in Moscow, I presume, where a uh, stodgy old admiral walks into his office through. A bunch of doors where everyone greets him and he's like, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Another day at the office. Yep, exactly. He gets his uh, morning tea from his uh, from the orderly, I guess, right there. And the tea is obviously in one of those uh, Russian um, uh, uh, Russian cups that I remember well from my childhood, where you have like a, essentially a glass where you pour where you pour the hot li liquid in, and then that glass actually is gets put into the pewter or metal um, ring ensconced uh, in it, and you drink uh, and you drink out of that. So uh, that's a very nice detail. I thought that was very uh, appropriate. So and, honestly, uh, I didn't you. pick that up, but I'm going to uh, go exactly. back and look at that scene. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, he's not drinking it out of uh, out of a normal cup. Like a savage. Yeah, exactly. Like a, Western yeah. like a Westerner, yeah. Like a bourgeois. Uh, but did uh, he put his pinky out? I couldn't tell. No, the, the, uh, I don't think so, but maybe. But at the same time, he's uh, opening uh, his day's correspondence, and amongst that, he finds a letter from... Uh, Marco Ramius, aka Comrade Connery, telling uh, we don't know, we do not know what is uh, in that letter, right? Mm -hmm. They not don't yet, even. But it's basically right. the plans. He's right. like, hey, yeah. FYI, I right. stole a submarine and yep. I'm going so, to do something with it. Yep. So they, he's, uh, so he, we we just show him reading it. We don't see the contents of the letter, and then all of a sudden we see the the, the glass fall down, and uh, then it cuts right straight to the next scene. Yep. So uh, a couple of things on that, really quickly. What you got? A, in real life, I would imagine that any sort of male correspondence would probably be read over both by the, uh, both before it reached the admiral's desk by his adjutant or assistant, mm -hmm. uh, as well as probably by the interior ministry um, operative uh, when the when it was sent over from the uh, from the sub uh, uh, captain's desk. So I, I although it makes for a great movie scene, it's not necessarily how it would happen in real life, and probably the plan might have unraveled even before. Well, I would just love to have seen. Him opening up a bunch of his personal mail. It's like, all right, there's a bill. All right, here's my phone bill. Uh, oh, another ad for 20% off for Bed Bath Beyond. I got enough of those. Exactly, yep. And then all of a sudden he finds that little letter. But anyways, the point is Com Comrade Connery can't keep a secret, uh, which I think his whole – the rest of his crew is pretty upset about Yep. as well. Like why can't you although just keep he, your mouth shut? Although he did keep that secret from them until they yep. were already at sea. So, Before we sailed, I dispatched a letter to Admiral Bedoran. 
in which I announced our intention to defect. In the name of God, why? When he reached the New World, Cortez burned his ships. As a result, his men were well motivated. You have signed our death warrants. Adorin will send the entire fleet. Jesus, they'll find us. They'll find us and hunt Nobody's us Nobody's going to find us. That's enough, Yuri. You had to do it, huh? You couldn't just turn the submarine over to the Americans. You had to make a political statement. Was it ego, Captain? We each have our reasons, Victor. My own began the day I was handed the blueprints for this ship. A ship which had but one use. So Jack Ryan, uh, he's in this hallway. He's doing a little like West Wing walk and talk uh, with James Earl Jones. And he, we find out he's about to brief the National Security Advisor. He's pretty nervous uh, in his presentation. I could not stop thinking of his great monologue he has, uh, Alec Baldwin in Glengarry Glen Ross. His presentation's not nearly as good as that, no. but you can see a little bit of the swagger as the he guy's leaves. not getting the steak knife set. No, not not at all. A B C. A always B B C closing. Always be closing. Always be closing. He goes through the brief, and here's what he says. He says the Red October. It's a big, big, big sub. Its displacement, which is how much water it moves, kind of tells you the size of the submarine. Jack Ryan says it's 32,000 tons in the water, and that's a pretty big submarine. Now, here's what's kind of interesting. The real-life Typhoon, it has 34 to 48,000, depending on the size model it is, submerged. So it's the, already the largest submarine ever uh, compared to, say, the Ohio-class uh, U.S. submarine, which is about 17,000 tons. Uh, of displacement. So the fact when they say this is a bigger typhoon class submarine, it's actually it's smaller. Right. Yep. So then they lo they lose a point for me. I so, don't know why they do. Yeah, that. so the, so two things. One, uh, I think the um the actual uh dimensions and the, the tonnage of the typhoon class was 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 definitely classified on the Soviet side and I doubt that it was true, available true. uh at that time publicly. Uh but also the second thing is uh, I think that gets to the uh, overall sort of design of the uh, of how um, Russians designed uh, the Typhoon class um, submarines because I believe they had why it displaced so much more uh, than the than comparable in terms of uh, uh, delivery. The uh, Ohio class submarine uh, was because I think it was built on a double hull um, mm -hmm. with a double hull, i.e., there was like uh, there was an outer hull below the uh, the outer hull were the actual SLBM launching system and then below that was the uh, i believe the the other interior hull where all of the crewmen crew actually yeah and engine. all of the uh, yeah communications and whatnot was so that's why the submarine was the, the way the it, it, it's not that uh, they it was basically a design concept for that it wasn't a yeah. Let's let's put in as much steel or aluminum as possible and see and yeah. just get a big boat. It was uh, there was a design concept behind it. It's a real big deal, but I think the big thing that he says in his briefing is that the U.S. because of this caterpillar propulsion system, they wouldn't be able to detect it with the SOS U.S. this warning nets. And this is a real life thing. Uh, this is a system of antennas in the ocean with hydroacoustic detectors. They're deployed at the border of Greenland the Faroe Islands, Great Britain, and elsewhere in the Pacific, an area of this, as a submarine passes through it, 
they can know, all right, there's a submarine coming through here. Let's start to track it. Maybe we'll send out a uh, ASW or anti-submarine warfare uh, airplane that will start to monitor where this is. And mm-hmm. then this is where I, my uh, super critical hairs on my arm start to pop up is because the National Security Advisor thinks maybe it's a first strike weapon because of how quiet it is or some sort of a thing. And Jack Ryan agrees. He says that the the MIRVs, the multiple independently targeted reentry vehicles on each of these missiles, uh, can do a lot of damage with little to no warning. And I guess that's the idea that Skip Taylor said, is that the submarine can get right off the coast and fire all the missiles really quickly and no one would even know. But I don't really understand why they would describe the the Red October as a first strike weapon as opposed to what normally you would understand a submarine to be which is a survivable second strike all the missiles get knocked out the land-based ones all the bombers get knocked out you think great I've first striked I've stopped them from being able to attack me oh I forgot there are all these nuclear submarines out there each missile can carry 10 or so warheads Mm -hmm. I'm still going to get hit pretty hard so when they describe it as uh, a submarine that has stealth and can, quote, shower its targets with MIRVs with little to no warning. That's just a textbook's definition of any sort of nuclear-armed submarine. Right. Uh, so I don't really understand why they describe it. Maybe because of how stealthy it is, it can get right up to the coast. That's not Once kind again, of yeah. how the, this works. So the, the range on the um, RSM-52s, I believe, is 8,000 uh, uh, kilometers. And so with that... I mean, that's uh, 8,000 kilometers, that's what I think, that's more than the distance between San Francisco and New York, right? So pretty yeah. uh, far. So the, the submarine does not need to be next to the next to the coast of the enemy to uh, to, to launch its missiles. Well, they, they talk about that. They say that it, the submarine will take four days to to reach its target because we find out here that the, uh, the, the Russian ambassador to the United States goes and meets with the National Security Advisor uh, and says, hey, look, we have uh, pretty good evidence that says that uh, Comrade Connery has stolen a submarine and is now going to go to the east coast of the United States and first strike without our authorization. So can you please do us a favor and hunt and destroy this submarine? We're going to go out and do the same thing. We're going to go after this thing. And it's, it takes four days, according to the movie, for it to get to some kind of range, whatever that is. But you're right. 8,000 kilometer uh, operational capability of how far this missile can go. And that's uh, when the, where we see the submarine at the very beginning of the movie to Washington, D.C. is less than 7,000 kilometers. We're talking warning distances in time of like 20 to 30 minutes. I don't understand when little to no warning, 20 to 30 minutes. That maybe that's enough to get missiles out of the ground and up in the air and we would still have our own submarine force to retaliate against right. them. This whole first strike notion, I just don't get it. And maybe there's some – someone can correct me in the comment section of the episode or in on, on Twitter or something. But I just don't really understand why this would be described as a first strike weapon. But anyways, Jack Ryan is hearing this briefing and he just yells out, you SOB. And he figures out what's going on here. You wish to add something to our discussion, Dr. Ryan? Well, sir, I was just thinking that perhaps there's another possibility we might consider. Ramius might be trying to defect. Do you mean to suggest that this man has Proceed, come... Mr. Ryan. Ramius trained most of their officer corps, which would put him in a position to select men willing to help him. 
And he's not Russian. He's Lithuanian by birth, raised by his paternal grandfather, a fisherman. And he has no children, no ties to leave behind. And today is the first anniversary of his wife's death. Oh, come on. You're just an analyst. What can you possibly know what goes on in this mine? I know Remy is, General. He's nearly a legend in the submarine community. He's been a maverick his entire career. I actually met him once at an embassy dinner. So he, what does he do? He asks for a little bit of time uh, to test this theory out. And there's this great back and forth. The uh, general in the, in the briefing room asks a CIA analyst how he could possibly know what Comrade Connery is thinking, which I thought was funny because that to me is like the job description. Right. A CIA analyst is to come up with intel and interpret the intelligence. But the yeah, National Security Advisor likes Jack Scumption and gives him a couple of days to try to to try to figure it out. It, oh, also, the NSA thinks that uh, Jack Ryan is "quote unquote" expendable. So yeah, that's, exactly. Uh, so <laughs> he can be fired if something goes wrong. Yeah, Although, that uh, that I think is uh, runs very true to uh, to real life. So although to be that's... fair, if if Jack Ryan is wrong, uh, half of the East Coast is expendable because right. there'll be missiles in the air. Exactly. Um, but I guess what Jack Ryan wants is he wants to get the submarine and like look Get at them, it yeah uh, yep. do some intel work that would be amazing um but anyways so that's kind of where we're at now uh this other submarine that we're talk we talked about earlier this one uh manned by captain, captain tupolev who's played by skarsgård stellan skarsgård yep. awesome in this movie uh he's now ordered to hunt his former professor and he pushes the nuclear reactor to 105 percent of its capability so we can catch up. What does that even mean? I don't know. I think it's, a, I think it's dialing the, the reactor to 11. Exactly. <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I think that means. I mean, it might run it more so that it has a chance of breaking, but... Right, yeah. I mean, there's only so much fissile material, I would assume, right? So right. that's... Uh... that's <laughs> this is outside of my can... area of expertise, yeah. but the point is he's going fast, right? He goes fast, boom. He goes to ludicrous speed. Ludicrous, yeah, exactly, to, yeah. yeah. Too many movie references here. Uh, so Jack Jack Ryan gets permission to fly onto the USS Enterprise, which is a aircraft carrier based in the Atlantic Ocean. He meets up with Fred Thompson, uh, for, for former uh, Senator Fred Thompson, former uh, unsuccessful presidential candidate yep. uh, Fred Thompson as well, former well district district he, attorney. Oh yes, Fred Thompson yep. from uh, Law and Order. Uh, Fred Thompson's really good in this movie. He's exactly the level of Fred Thompsonist that we've come to love. Uh, he brings up a. Uh, a good point that if you try to steal the boat without the not all of the crew on the red october is probably going to be part of this mutiny right yep so ostensibly they, they did take the oath to the soviet navy and to the soviet states right. so some of them are probably not as and there's uh, like a hundred probably a hundred or so crew right on this on this particular boat fred thompson asks are you going to kill the ones that aren't involved in your plan or are we going to hold them hostage like, or hold them prisoner mm -hmm. forever. Like, what and, are you going to do with that crew? And so, also, how do you keep the Russians from actually finding out what, right. that you have the boat? That would be so kind of an act of war, because, right? Because, yeah, yeah, yeah. But because boarding a, uh, uh, boarding a boat that in peacetime, that is, uh, yep. uh, that uh, no one gave you permission to board is, yeah, it's an act of aggression, act of war, especially if that boat contains uh, 20 SLBMs. That's uh, yeah, that's well, problematic. 30, 30 oh, thirty. My mistake. I'm maybe. sorry. That's even worse. I'm still operating in 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 the real world. My mistake. So it's a it's a big deal now. Jack Ryan has to think about this a little bit more, and we also learn a little bit more about Jack Ryan's backstory. He's not just a 
a book learned uh, CIA operative. He actually was a former Marine when he was in the Naval Academy. He was in a bad helicopter accident that left him in traction for over a year, but he still finished his schooling uh, from the hospital bed. So we, we kind of learned uh, this guy, he's got some training. He's, he's clearly a, a, a badass in a way. He's not just uh, some guy who sticks mm-hmm. in his study reading books on uh, naval history in London. Uh, so that, Although he does that as well. He does that as well. He's a well-rounded guy. Yep, Renaissance man. Renaissance men, and and there's also this great scene where a the on the USS Enterprise, an incoming I, th- I think they change the stock footage to make it a different airplane, but an F-14 goes to land on uh, the and the deck of the, the carrier deck, and it crashes. Mm-hmm. And Fred Thompson has this great line that says, "This business will get out of control. It'll get out of control, and we'll be lucky to live through it." And I think that's great because it really points to the idea of escalation without really any sort of intention. Mm-hmm. Small things can lead to things that you, as can spiral out of control, especially when you're talking about st- essentially stealing a, a Russian first-class, typhoon-class submarine. With nuclear weapons. And- so I think that's a great thematic point here. It's a little tiny scene, uh, but it's kind of fun. Uh, speaking of fun little details, we go back to the USS Dallas and... I had to pause the screen here because in the middle of this conversation where Jonesy is talking to Scott Glenn, who plays uh, the CO of the USS Dallas, uh, he's talking about the fact that Jonesy can figure out how to detect the Red October. He's figured it out. You know, the computer can't figure it out, but he can figure it out. And now he can track even with this Caterpillar system. In the background, you see a couple books on the CO's desk. And some of those books, Jane's Defense Weekly. And what looks like Dutton's nautical navigation. There's no reason that they couldn't have just fake books in this background. <laughs> but the fact they have these real life like journals. Like I used to read Jane's Defense Weekly all the time for uh, jobs back in the past. And I don't know what Dane's nautical navigation is, but I, Dutton's. But I looked it up and it is a real book, like a reference guide for you know navigating around in a submarine. Why? Why have those details? But I appreciate it. Props once, to the props uh, department. Yeah, exactly. And once again, I think the uh, advisors from the, that the production has retained, yeah. they proved their worth, worth every penny. <laughs> uh, so the Red October um, is now navigating its way to the United States, and it has to pass through what they call Thor's Twins, which is like a ravine with lots of different kind of jaggedy rocks yep. and has to go through it. It's basically essentially a geological formation somewhere in the Atlantic Ocean, which yeah. leads to a bunch of canyons, which, I mean, do we know, does that actually exist? Someone looked, I looked this up and someone said that there was something like it, but it's not called, Thor's, okay. Thor's, it's something like Jupiter or something or other, but there's someone, there's some kind of an equivalent, but nothing like that. I thought Thor's twins was a funny name. It sounded like something like a, a prank that Loki would play when Thor was in a, his bachelor days, um, like turn into a snake, turn into a a, a, tw- a set of twins. And exactly. Anyways, it's a precarious situation. Uh, Comrade Connery pushes his team. I don't really know why. I think he's just wanting to get faster to the East Coast of the United States so he can defect. He knows he's being hunted. Yeah, I think that he's trying to change tactics because he know since he uh, taught all of the uh, current uh, or uh, in the movie all, all of the submarine captains yeah. in the Soviet Navy that uh, he, he if he changes tactics on them then he'll he'll be able to sort of slip past the uh, 
uh, slip past uh, the, the other submarines. But I'm not really sure why. Uh, but we end up having a little bit of an accident. Turns out someone sabotaged the Caterpillar drive. Uh, something having to do with the chirogenic plant failed, and they're worried a little bit about radiation leakage. So I don't really know. That, that to that me is. just reads like Star Trek gobbledygook, like yep. in the next generation. They're like, yeah. Uh, but it's the important thing here is, is that the crew is worried about radiation leakages, mm -hmm. and they have to switch back to regular propulsion. So they they lose the caterpillar drive. They lose the ability to silently run. Well, here's what I'm confused about. If there's worried about a radiation leak, is the caterpillar drive nuclear-based? It doesn't sound like it. It sounds like it's some sort of magnets. If the reactor is broken, you can't drive on regular propulsion because that's what powers both of those two things. Tim? I think that, that we're way in the weeds here, I'll be honest. <laughs> anyway, so now it's now the Red October is vulnerable to detection. The USS Dallas picks it up again, uh, and they try to kind of figure out what's happening here. Now we, we cut to some kind of fun little chase thing, scenes. They're, they're trying to figure out who the saboteur is, who damaged the Caterpillar drive. Uh, we, we are, we're cutting to a what's called Bear Foxtrot in the movie. It's a Soviet anti-sub aircraft. Uh, is that the uh, tuple of uh, two one fifty two, or do we know the designation, or we just see just a Soviet type bomber? I just, I, the... I, okay. yeah, it's a good point. I don't know what it is. I just know that it's dropping sonar buoys, okay. and they they find the Red October and they drop uh, a tor torpedo. So the Red October right. does countermeasures, and it 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 doesn't get hit, but it's close. Right. Uh, so we, it hits the side of the canyon, I believe. Does all that kind of fun stuff. So they eventually lots they get of away. suspense there. Yeah, Jack. Ryan eventually figures out that the Soviets are chasing the Red October and are trying to push them towards the U.S. attack submarines. So he wants to get on the USS Dallas because they're tracking the Red October. They know how, uh, and he wants to essentially just jump into the submarine uh, so that he can tell Scott Glenn, here's what's going on. Don't blow it up. Trying to Because he, he thinks that there's a defection, so he's trying to convince right. them. And it's this great line while he's on a helicopter because he doesn't like flying. Where he says, next time, Jack, write a goddamn memo. Yep. He said that a couple of times. I thought that was pretty funny. Jack Ryan gets on the USS Dallas and tries to make his case to Scott Glenn. Mm -hmm. and kind of, hey, look, mm -hmm. the defection is going to take place. I don't think Scott Glenn's having too much of it nope. at first. Then we cut back to the Red October. Uh, it's this kind of sad scene of Comrade Connery and Sam Neill debating about what state Sam Neill wants to live in. Which he says, Montana and how many wives he wants? Yeah, I'm not sure the, that? that maybe they got confused. They have it confused with Utah, circa 19th century, but who knows? It's, uh, yeah. Yep. We find a little bit about kind of why Connery's doing this. You you learn about Connery's uh, sad regrets. His, you know, his wife passed away when he was out to sea. Mm -hmm. she, she underlined all these passages about the uh, end of the world, trying to maybe convince him, look, uh, what you're doing is dangerous. And once he gets the blueprints for this new submarine, he also thinks it's a first strike weapon and he wants to not be a part of this anymore. And he just wants to be a fisherman again. Like he was, I guess his father or when he grew up, he was uh, involved in the fishing industry and he just wants to get back to doing that. Um, but now they figured out that the U.S. Dallas is behind them because the U.S. Da Dallas is kind of right. right behind them. So they do this move called a crazy Ivan, where they suddenly, without warning, change course. Tim, uh, is that uh, is that something that was actually tried out in real life? Yeah, it's a it's a real procedure. Because wow. the idea is you hide behind the baffles, the the bubbles in the stream to kind of 
basically hide amongst the noise. But to do it, you have to be relatively close by. So if you suddenly change direction and the USS Dallas or the attack sub that's behind them doesn't follow suit, then they'll now be able to be detected. So according to uh, Pavel Podvig, the gentleman I mentioned earlier, his book, Russian Strategic Nuclear Forces, he lists a couple different tricks that the Soviets would use uh, to escape detection and counter ASW. He said, Crazy Ivan, you know, periodically changing course to verify that they're not being followed is one way to do it. You try to stay in direct proximity to like merchant ships or other naval mm -hmm. vessels and just kind of with high noise levels and hide amongst mm -hmm. them. Uh, you can travel at the quietest possible speed, which actually means slower. Mm -hmm. So a lot of these patrol, these combat patrols that boomers would go on, they don't go very far. Right. But they're just moving really quietly, really low, because they know roughly where all of these uh, hydroacoustic antennas are. So they just kind of go real quiet. Crazy Ivan. I don't know if that term is correct, mm -hmm. but that style is definitely, definitely a real thing. So it, it, so in real life, though, it was more about sort of keeping yourself undetected rather than uh, focus on speed, uh, being in the right place as fast as possible. Exactly. And, and if you know you're being followed, you can at least, all right, now I'm going to call in, call this in, maybe have some other helicopters on your side. Mm -hmm trying to mm -hmm. scare the so, scare call, them away. call for help basically yeah right exactly mm -hmm. all this stuff happens eventually jack ryan convinces the uss dallas co to signal to sean conrad connery that they're right behind him like so let them know then the co does this full reverse stop so that because he does that the engine's running backwards essentially they produce a bunch of noise that tells the red october that they're there the Red October doesn't move, so that's kind of how they communicate, right? That mm -hmm. the that they're there, and then they send out one ping. Now what? So he communicates, "Hey, are you trying to defect? Uh, F, you know, yes or no? Yes or no?" And then <laughs> Jack Ryan uh, tells the Red October, "If you are going to defect, go to this particular place." The Loretian Abyssal, kind of a very cheery name, but they plot a course for that direction. <laughs> and the Red October all of a sudden looks like it has a reactor problem, right? Mm -hmm. Tim Curry's freaking out. Mm -hmm. There might be radiation leakages. Connery orders the submarine to surface to get air. All of yeah, He tells all of the crew that's not the yep. officers. The officers are the ones involved in the mutiny. He tells them to get off the ship, get on the boats. And Connery, because he's an amazing hero will mm -hmm. stay go down the, with the, the, the captain so uh, an interesting side note on that and uh, and this is something that i just learned there yeah. recently uh, in uh, actual in real life the typhoon class was only crewed by officers so there was oh. no uh, there were no ncos nor just seamen class uh, aboard because it was considered such a i guess strategic asset that because it is a very um, uh, advanced well uh, for by Soviet standards, was a very advanced uh, piece of equipment that uh, only trained officer personnel would be allowed on board and to operate all of that equipment. That's interesting. I did not come across that. So this mutiny plan maybe wouldn't work. No, so well. but uh, anyway, that's. Carter uh, would have to give a really good monologue yeah. uh, here for this to work. I think there was no way for the uh, for them to know that at that time. So that's how would they? Yeah, how would yeah. they know that? So yeah, and uh, then the uh, the other part that I actually wanted to focus on for just a little while yeah. is I think the uh, the movie around the hunt for Red October. I think it was one of the first movies that really li uh, tried to get the actual life aboard a 
Soviet submarine in the um, like to, to, to show it right mm -hmm. at least in, in some way shape or form. I actually wanted to check and see well what, what did they in, in terms of showing what it was like. Did it actually correspond to the real life? Um, unfortunately, I didn't find any first person sources uh, on the um, uh, on the Russian life aboard the Soviet submarine. However, I did come across uh, an interesting uh, entry from uh, actually uh, from 2010 in the Russian Navy blog. Uh, which, uh, as far as I know, I mean the the, uh, the author is anonymous, but I gather he's a either a uh, he's an American, either a former NCO or a former uh, officer in the U.S. Navy, so knows quite a bit about what's going on. He what he did was he came across the notes that the Russians took in a joint exercise with the French Navy back mm. in 2004. Uh, where the two sides, uh, during the exercise, they exchanged several liaison officers on board uh, one another's ships. Now, mind you, these are surface ships. Uh, from the French side, they were two destroyers. Uh, one was called um, La Tourville, oh, one was called Tourville, and the other one was called La Touche Treville. So I don't know what they, who they were. I think Tourville was a French admiral in the 17th century. Don't ask me how I know that, but <laughs> don't know what the, Boris, the other guy By the way, is. Boris... Uh... We used to go to do trivia a lot, like pub trivia, and uh, Boris, it was not fair. Like, the amount of knowledge that you had about nonsense, things like this, uh, was always very impressive. I always felt like we were cheating. Uh, good to know that, and thank you for the compliment, Tim. <laughs> so what were some of the things that they, they talked about? In this, uh, yeah, so the, just a, so this uh, this is a very interesting memo which was translated into English uh, from the Russian side. So uh, one thing that they that the Russian liaison officers took a note of was that. Uh, uh, slippery deck. Uh, they were uh, actually very surprised that the decks on French ships were uh, covered with the rough paint which limited slipping uh, even when wet, uh -huh. which obviously happens quite a bit because you're in sea, inclement weather, you know. In Russian ships, apparently, that was not standard. That was in 2004. So, uh, yeah. So I remember I've taken a lot of tours of of uh, naval vessels throughout my life. It's weird. I, before I was even into this stuff, my dad used to take us to like a submarine. Uh, I did a a summer debate camp between my freshman and sophomore year of high school and we visited one out in san francisco and that was one of the things i remember was how gritty the floors and the walls were right to give you traction and then my my uncle had a boat and it's kind of the same thing i remember anytime i would fall because i fell a lot as a kid you scrape your knees so bad mm -hmm. on that really gritty stuff uh and it scares me to think that the russian submarines didn't have Yep, on the, on the stairs, mind you. Oh yeah, so that's uh, yeah. So that's, the, that's an OSHA violation yeah. right there. Well, yeah, the, for uh, I'm sure the Russian OSHA would be very interested in what's <laughs> going on. So the, another uh, uh, kind of thing: uh, hygiene on board the ship. Oh boy, uh, the Russian officers took note that uh, that the Tourville, uh, French class destroyer, uh, which was 30 years old at that time, so mm -hmm. built in the 70s, the there was hot and cold fresh water in all of the compartments and all of the showers all of the time. And someone, one of the Russian officers even scribbled in the margin of the memo, no comment, with three exclamation marks. <laughs> so uh, that's, uh, I think that's a comparative, yeah. Well, the so Russians just were just harder, you know, hard, hard winters. Exactly, yeah. Uh, another comparative difference uh, that the Russian officers, uh, liaison officers noted was uh, that um, on the Russian, on board of Russian ships, and I think that it's shown kind of in the, in the movie as well, is there were lots of masters, i.e., 
a master is when uh, the the entire crew is sort of has to be present and accounted for okay. and uh, in some sort of a rank uh, order. Masters apparently happened several times a day on the Russian uh, on Russian ships. I don't know if that extended to the stored submarines, but on the Russian uh, surface ships, that was the case. Like the beginning of this movie when Comrade Connery gives his exactly and he yep. singing yep. Uh, on the French, uh, on the Tourville, there was no crew master for a week. So I don't know if that's. Yeah, wow. uh, so uh, I'm not sure what the uh, um, what the standard is on the um, uh, U.S. Navy vessels, but I assume they're probably closer to the Tourville, uh, less uh, yeah. less uh, emphasis on master and uh, the, uh, all of those things that were prevalent in the 19th century Navy. Well, it seems like the Soviet Navy was taking it from the Michael Scott School of Conference Meetings. Mm-hmm. Uh, conference room, five minutes, <laughs> five times a day. Seems right. like what it's like. Yep, exactly. That's interesting. Well, we learn a little bit about kind of uh, how all of these machinations come up, come about in the movie because we the big trick is revealed. Uh, so the U.S. frigate appears to signal to the Russian. Uh, the, the Red October, if you submerge, because they had gone up to surface level, we will destroy you. Connery orders the crew to get out into the lifeboats that aren't the ones that are mutiny. Uh, so then they submerge. Yep. The U.S. forget, drops a torpedo uh, out of a helicopter, and it detonates 300 yards from the Red October. So it looks like to the Russians that aren't defecting that the submarine is was under attack. Sunk. Yep. Right? Yep. Well, that the submarine was sunk, that there was a hit because the, I believe the torpedo that doesn't just deactivate, it it explodes. Right. So they, they think it's gone yep. down with the ship. Uh, Tim Curry, the doctor, says, oh, he's going to get the order of Lenin for this because he's a, he's a national hero. But then Jack Ryan uses that mini rescue sub that we see earlier in the movie. He uses that to make contact with the Red October. I guess their systems are compatible for the rescue subs to work together like that. I, I believe they make a comment uh, to that effect earlier in the um, uh, uh, earlier in the movie when um, Jack Ryan visits the uh, shipyards and they are actually working on that mini sub. And uh, Skip makes the comment that they are working on it and it'll can hook up to anything that mini sub. Just anything. It's a exactly nice yeah, thing, even yeah. a Soviet sub. Yep. So now the Russian are back to speaking Russian. Kind of a quick little change there, because I don't know why, but they're back to speaking Russian. This is a kind of a big scene you see multiple times in a movie. Jack Ryan declines cigarettes because he doesn't smoke, but then he asks for a cigarette as a sign of peace. Uh, he starts coughing, which takes the pressure out of the situation. Uh, and then Sean Connery says this nice line. I present you the ballistic missile submarine Red October. One, not only does they call in at the Red October, but it sounds like it's Christmas, yeah. like they exchange yep. gifts. Too bad that he didn't add Bakaru <laughs> the, the, <laughs> to, uh, uh, to that line of dialogue, uh, an, uh, a word that he used earlier in the movie to describe some mm-hmm. of the uh, American uh, captains. Well, speaking of another captain, uh, all of a sudden alarms start to go off because Captain uh, Tupolov is here. He's here to hunt the Red October, and he's found them, uh, and he's starting to throw some torpedoes. And all this stuff. And now the crew is shorthanded because all the uh, non-commissioned officers are off the ship. And Jack Ryan, for some reason, is tasked with steering the Red October. Don't know why Connery does, right. doesn't do that not or someone the, I mean, else. Yeah, I mean, Ryan, not a submarine yep. uh, officer. Not was never in the Navy, was in the Marines. But obviously doesn't have a first-level knowledge of how to operationalize. Yep. Uh, and also, uh, usually, from my understanding, American submarines and Soviet and later Russian submarines are different enough that it's you would think uh, so, right? you'd need at least a crash course in uh, 
uh, in knowing how to operate something in uh, another language. Yeah. No time. No. Uh, here's what happens. I love this little scene. The Red October steers directly at the incoming torpedo. Uh, and the way they do it is because the torpedo has a safety switch that will only arm itself after a certain distance. And the Red October closes the gap. The torpedo just hits the front of the Red October and breaks apart because it hadn't actually been armed yet. Right. Would that actually happen in real life, do you think? I mean, I, I don't know. That to me sounds like something. I would imagine that there would be some sort of a collision and that there could be some impact on the submarine hull, which could cause uh, a problem. Well, the Red October, it's just... It's an yeah, it's, a, it's an invincible ship or, or an invincible boat, yeah. It's a, it's a typhoon class. Boat. Exactly. Don't, don't, <laughs> yeah, don't underestimate it. But now there's a comment made that Captain Tufilov is going to change his tactics, right? He's going to remove the safety mechanism mm -hmm. so the next one is going to get them. But then we find out that the saboteur that we keep hearing about was the cook this mm -hmm. whole time. Mm -hmm. We see him at the very beginning of the movie when the keys are exchanged, when Conrad Comrie takes the keys and he announces the new orders. He, it turns out, was actually some kind of secret gru agent yeah, type KG, so. kgb style mm, intelligence yeah. person he, he was there he knew what the orders were he knew something was up so he stayed behind when everyone else was getting away and he shoots at connery but sam neal jumps in the way and he gets yep. shot he never is going to make montana i too bad I, instead of seeing big sky country montana he's marching straight towards the big country in the sky. Yep, and uh, ends up in uh, Jurassic Park. <laughs> if, if you pass that, do you think overall about having a, essentially a firefight in the middle of a, or in a, yeah. in a pressurized environment <laughs> below the surface of the ocean? Well, we learned that the saboteur uh, does not want the submarine to fall into American hands, so he is going to go to an SLBM, a missile, and hotwire it like a car to make it explode. To essentially kill up, <laughs> kill everybody and destroy the ship, I guess, to go nuclear and to, to blow it up. Uh, so he goes to do that and Connery and Jack Ryan go and, and do a, a firefight. Now, this is a question that you may be asking yourself. How does a cook know about how to rewire the firing mechanism of an SLBM and cause it to detonate? Now, Joel, the former podcast host, he submitted this question to me. Uh, to cover on the podcast. and Thanks, I, I think, Joel. Thanks, Joel. Yeah. Hey, Joel. Uh, supposedly in the book, it's revealed that the cook was an intelligence officer. I, they mentioned this, I think, in the conversation between Comrade Connery and Ivan Putin at the beginning, like how many KGB agents are on this ship mm -hmm. and they don't know and they won't talk about it. So it, the point is, that's who he was. In the book, it's more explicit. Here, it's a lot uh, less explicit. Mm -hmm. According to Bruce Blair, the guy I mentioned earlier who wrote the book, The Logic of Accidental Nuclear War, he interviewed a former Soviet naval officer who said that the boomers in the 1980s usually had a KGB officer on board. They, they tended to know who that person was, mm. uh, and they had no combat portfolio. They just kind of walked around and, quote, smiled and checked the crew for morale and political loyalty. So uh, my my response to that is, yeah, for KGB, very well may, may be true. Uh, the cook, I believe, was the, or at least it's hinted in the movie that he's GRU, GRU, uh, yeah. military intelligence arm. Different than a KGB. Yes, yeah. uh, whereas KGB was the political, or not, not political, but really the interior ministry's uh, spine arm, so roughly equivalent to both CIA and FBI combined. Right. We're kind uh, of, whereas I, I jump back and forth between KGB and GRU because I think the movie... 
does. Right. Like yeah. Because the, for that, it's just a, uh, an acronym. Whereas Najaru in the r- real life was and still is uh, basically military intelligence, uh, kind of like DIA, but we're on DIA on steroids with, with a much mm. more uh, inclusive portfolio of activities, shall we say. So may, they may very well have, uh, have had some training with that. But uh, once again, suspense. Uh, suspense yeah. is what this movie is all about. So Well, well here's the question I have. It's, it's sure, how can an, an intelligence officer like this know how to detonate an ICBM or an SLBM? But the question I have is, how good is this secret political officer's borscht? If they're going to make some food for the crew, I really hope for the crew's sake that he's at least a competent, uh, multi-talented guy. Yeah, and that's it's not an easy skill. No, I mean, uh, the gentleman is shown as I think he's either cutting meat or cutting something in mm-hmm. almost every scene. So, must have been uh, working around the clock, right there. Very impressive. So two, uh, two very different portfolios, <laughs> shall we say? He's really the star of the movie, to be honest. Uh, so here's something you kind of mentioned earlier. This scene really can happen because the typhoons, SLBMs, uh, because of this dual hull system, pressurized hull, the SLBMs literally are not accessible to the crew. They're separated by walls of steel or titanium or uh, other kinds of metals uh, that the hull is made of, so you have no access to it. But Tom Clancy, he may not have known that. He was modeling off of the U.S. submarines where these things were accessible. Uh, According to Bruce Blair, there is a way on some of the submarines, not the Typhoon class, but where you could get access to it, there was a procedure to bypass unblocking codes, which are the things you would need to literally launch the weapon with the guidance system. Mm-hmm. But to do it, you had to have multiple members of the crew stationed throughout the ship doing a very particular sequence of actions, almost simultaneously, but in a particular order, for the guidance system unblocking codes to be, be bypassed. I would say for this movie, there weren't too many cooks. In the kitchen. Uh. Right. So anyways, Comrade Connery takes a bullet. Uh, It's up to Jack Ryan to stealth his way through the rows of very conveniently labeled in English missiles. Let's say the numbers, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, yeah. I mean, they, I think they, uh, the builders of the submarine had a very um, anticipated this very scenario happening. Yep. So they they put uh, signs in both Russian and English. And yeah, well, here's the thing. Solved. Obviously, I think Jack Ryan speaks Russian and reads Russian. I think that's an understanding. Uh, yeah, from Tom Clancy, I believe he, yeah, he, he so does. So yeah. why didn't they just say, all right, it's on the, I think he said, missile number 20 is where this is right. going to happen at. He can just go to the end of the hallway. They could have a line that says missile 20 is at the end of the hall. Whatever. doesn't matter. The thing is, is that these missiles are labeled in English and they're also all red. So they really red. commit to this. When they, when they call it the Red October. It is very red. red. Very red. My favorite color combination, this is an aside, is red and black. So the fact that the Typhoon's hull is black and the inside is red, I, I love this. This movie was made especially for you, Tim. Exactly. So they have a lot of gun shooting stuff. They they joke that these things in this room respond well to being shot, things mm-hmm. like missiles. Jack kills the cook right before the bomb's about to be detonated. The USS Dallas steps in to kind of divert a torpedo away. They trick the torpedo into coming right back to Captain Topolov because there's no safety mechanism on it. He dies. Instead, the crew thinks that the submarine actually detonated the Red October. And then you see a little bit of things at the end of the movie. The national security advisor for the U.S. tells the Russian ambassador that the Red October was destroyed. And it was destroyed in this deep abyss Mm -hmm. that there's no way they're going to be able to get to it. They will not be able to recover it. And then I believe the uh, Russian ambassador also makes a comment that they also essentially 
lost another submarine and the uh, NSA uh, makes fun of him for that. Hey. Essentially uh, saying, oh, you lost another submarine? Dun, 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 dun. Yeah. Yep. Uh, we cut to the Red October. It's near Maine, off the coast of Maine, uh, near a particular naval base. They say it's far enough away from one of those so that the satellites won't pick it up because they're actually surfaced because mm-hmm. they want to have this not very good CGI, like green screen thing of Connery and Alec Baldwin having yep. a little conversation about. You can see the forest through, I think, some, someone's hair in there. So, yeah, green yeah, it's screen pretty was bad. definitely, I mean, the late 80s, what can you say? No. Fair, fair enough. But I think a little bit of a nitpick thing here is where they're at is only 85 miles from the U.S. Naval Air Station at Brunswick, Maine. And if you're going to have a satellite imagery looking at this particular uh, naval base station, because they do a lot of ASW Mm -hmm. there, they are really not that far for satellite imagery. Might want to stay below water for a little bit longer. But they have this conversation. There is one question you haven't asked me yet. Why? Now, there are those who believe we should attack the United States first, settle everything in one moment. Red October was built for that purpose. When the dust settles from this, there's going to be hell to pay in Moscow. Uh, perhaps. Maybe some good will come from it. A little revolution now and then is a healthy thing, don't you think? Connery says he's looking forward to fishing again. Jack Ryan finally has a chance to sleep on the airplane ride home, so you see that his nerves have calmed. Next to him is this gigantic new teddy bear that he bought for his daughter, Sally. But I'm upset by that. Why is that, Tim? Because why have a giant stuffed bear that's a little too Russian for me? Should have got her a stuffed eagle. Stuffed eagle. That's uh, that's what we're missing. Uh, Toys R Us, if only you had that... Uh, yeah. Uh, if only you had that idea, maybe you'd still be in business. Yeah. Well, anyways, that's that's the movie. This whole movie is a fascinating little tale. Uh, it's loosely based on a real-life story of an attempted mutiny aboard the Soviet frigate. Horace, how would you pronounce the Soviet frigate? Uh, Storozhovoy, the Guardian. The Guardian. Excellent. And they know how to name their ships. That's good stuff. So this frigate's political commissaire, uh, Captain Sablin, uh, wanted to steal a ship, not to defect the United States, not because he was so upset at conflict and war. He was upset that the Brezhnev-led government in Russia was not Leninist enough, yep. that they were corrupt. So he wanted to go that... give a radio broadcast to the rest of the Soviet Union, calling on people to restore their revolutionary zeal. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, a couple of uh, a couple of things if we yeah. may touch on it. First of all, they we're not talking about the ship's captain here, not the yeah, bad officer. Exactly. We're they we're talking about the political, uh, political of a chief political officer. So the the, the chief political officer thinks that the chi- that the current uh, who should be more the most reliable, I guess, yeah. the <laughs> person on the boat uh, on the ship thinks that the, the uh, communist leadership is not. Uh, um, orthodox enough, so needs to go. We need to go back to the basics. Yeah, so yeah, so that, I think that's a bit ironic. First, it's, uh, it's <laughs> like because in this movie, Putin, mm-hmm. Ivan Putin, gets his neck broken or right. strangled to death. Right. He, you know, in this real life story, he's the supposed hero of the. Right. Anyways, uh, so he tricks the captain, uh, says that there's some sort of like disciplinary problem downstairs, and then he locks them up, mm-hmm. uh, including, and he takes all the officers and he makes them vote 
who's going to be in favor of this. Supposedly, he's really good at giving speeches. As a political officer should be. Right. Well, but well, almost never was. Witness, <laughs> witness Putin's speeches. Well, he gives all these speeches, and he gets most of the crew to agree. Um, but one of the guys who voted in favor of this has doubts. He escapes. He goes and tells somebody what's happening. At first, they don't believe him, but the crew thinks that they will be caught. So they leave a day early in the middle of the night, uh, which signals that they're actually are defecting mm -hmm. or not defecting. They signals that they're stealing the ship. Half of the Baltic fleet thinks that this guy's about to get asylum. He's going to seek asylum in Sweden. I guess what had happened recently with another one of their captains. So they chase him. Unlike Comrade Connery, uh, his crew is captured. The ship is captured. He is arrested, uh, Captain Sablin, and he is tried, convicted of treason and executed by a firing squad. So the movie's very different. But the story was written into a master's thesis and then a book, which was placed in the U.S. Naval Academy archives, later read by Tom Clancy, who was an insurance salesman at the time, and inspired his book and our movie today. That's how it comes together. Yeah. Really, really, really interesting. And I'm just surprised, like, um, uh, how would a, what I assume was... Uh, an uh, academic or a wannabe academic mm -hmm. at that time, uh, how would they get information on what actually happened? Because I mean, I'm guessing that was still in the 70s, 80s when the flow of information was quite severely restricted between the Soviet Union and the West. I would imagine that the Soviets would not want news of, a, uh, of an attempted takeover of, yeah. a, of, a, uh, of a naval frigate by the crew to really re uh, disseminate very widely. You know, your wife is trying to write her doctoral thesis at this point. <laughs> I think you are underestimating the tenacity of tenacity the yeah okay of an academic researcher. Um, but one hey, of honey, that, love you. <laughs> one of the things I love about this is that uh, Tom Clancy he wrote this and it was published by the the Naval Academy Press. Much like a lot of Michael Bay movies, the Navy was very happy to let them play with their toys. Uh, the Navy thought that this movie could do for the submarine fleet what Top Gun did for their flight schools to as a recruitment tool to get people involved. I think even there were some stories of like recruitment stations being set up outside the movie theater. Hey, you love this movie. You like Scott Glenn. Do you want to be Scott Glenn? That kind of stuff. I don't know if the CIA had an equivalent. Probably not, but I mean, I'm guessing it also has to do... Um with the sort of the post-Vietnam, sort of the, the idea that, that the U.S. military in general was sort of uh, mm -hmm. back on its feet and back on top. Obviously, the uh, this movie came out a year before the first Gulf War, right? It came out in 1990. This was 1990, 19... yeah. Yeah, so one year before the... So which gave it further push, sort of. But yeah, that I think there is quite, quite uh, an interesting, potentially dissertation topic to, to be <laughs> the explored with regards to uh, how those movies in the late eighties portrayed the the U.S. military. Well, there's a it's a double-edged sword in a way for this particular tale. So in terms of accuracy, it meant that the Navy essentially had an open book for letting them learn on actual U.S. submarines. So the USS uh, Salt Lake City opened up its doors, uh, again, opened up its hatch to the crew to go on an overnight run. Uh, Scott Glenn, who is, this, like I said, the CO of the USS Dallas, his... In the movie. In the movie. Yep, I don't think in real life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think in real life he's just a general badass. Um, so he shadowed the actual captain of the USS Salt Lake City and... They had an arrangement set up so that Scott Glenn would actually give the orders and they were meant to – all the crew was meant to salute him as an actual officer and they went through all of their procedures. This guy who ran the tour eventually became like a top-level 
person. I, I don't I don't forget if it was a secretary of the Navy, but he became a, a high level guy in the U.S. Navy. So that was kind of a cool uh, little trick there. Um, so there's that accuracy and things. But as the story you mentioned to me before we started this podcast, it had a, a negative side as well because they ran all these missions. You want to tell this story here? Sure. So the the U.S. Navy has detailed several ships in addition to U.S. Salt Lake City to assist with the filming. Uh, one of them was uh, another Los Angeles class uh, submarine, the USS Houston. Mm-hmm. Which is where they filmed a lot of the actual, I think, the Dallas scenes, right? I believe it stood in for Dallas uh, for, for the throughout the filming. And I, I think that they filmed some of it on, the, on a lot somewhere in, uh, in L.A., but uh, in, some of the scenes were filmed on board the submarine. Mm-hmm. So it was there to assist in the filming uh, of the uh, uh, of the movie right off of Long Beach and L.A. Unfortunately, it uh, for whatever reason, the um, it was involved in a... Um, collision with a with a tugboat uh during the filming uh tugboat that i don't believe was in the, was involved it was just there in the, mm-hmm. in the general vicinity what happened is the uss houston has uh basically ran run into a tow cable that the, 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 the tugboat was uh towing and uh what happened is it snagged the uh tow line for the tugboat and it essentially snapped the entire tugboat in half it dragged and, it underwater yeah dragged too, right? it under yeah. yep uh, and so uh, one uh, crewman on the tugboat lost his life during that uh, accident. That I was actually not aware of it until uh, very recently. So I think that ha- that uh, did not have a good ending. The double-edged sword of access to actual naval military work um, is great for accuracy, but these are people who uh, are operating very dangerous equipment. There are people whose oh, whose lives are put on hold for a long time when they're on deployment, and. You know, it's it's a uh, it's sad when these kind of things happen uh, in the course of the filming. So let's wrap up here. We've kind of gone through all the nuke stuff and the plot stuff. Let's do maybe some concluding thoughts on the film. You know, you know our rating system, Boris. You're a longtime listener. Our rating system we usually do one out of five, so that it's consistent across all of the different content, uh, whether it's movies, TVs, books, video games, uh, board games, whatever we decide to cover today. Uh, but we like to customize it to tailor it so that. If we're going to get super critical about the movie, we're going to get super critical about our rating system. So for today, how about one out of five pings, like sonar pings, right? In the movie, one single ping is good enough to send a secret message to another submarine. But if you have five pings, you can talk to whales. Wow. I think that's a pretty big deal. So how many out of five pings would you give this movie? I'd give it the full five. A full five? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, the perfect ping movie. 100% ping proof. I'd say that uh, basically the combination of Connery and Baldwin works very well, even though they are on the screen together for only a few minutes mm-hmm. uh, of the movie. Uh, I do think that it's uh, mar- that it mar- marked a new direction in um, in military movies, where which went for more realism than the than the ones before. If you uh, um, look at some of the stuff that was made in the sixties or seventies, it was really kind of it was either gritty, uh, uh, gritty drama-like, or else a more else tacky explosions. Whereas this uh, was really a suspense movie with an action thriller, sort of uh, large action thriller component. That's cool. I, I like the way you described it because it's as Roger Ebert mentioned uh, in the review that I quoted earlier. Like it's a great pace of how the mystery is unfolding. That's why I talked about the the actual real life story at the end because I wanted to this to be revealed slowly in the course of the podcast as well. So this whole mutiny story, I think it's it's a lot of fun how it's going. So I'm going to give it four pings. Very fun. Some good action scenes. Connery's great. 
watching young Alec Baldwin is a delight. Uh, the only issue that I kind of take away from for one ping is simply nuclear related. A lot of the stuff about, and this is this is a thing that if I watched this movie as a young as a young man, I would have maybe given it a five. But now that I'm aware of kind of how the Russian naval vessels work, the idea of why this would be a danger at all in terms of it being a first strike weapon, I can't get that out of my head. As accurate as these movies are compared to some of the previous submarine movies, there's just enough that four is pretty good. So it knocks off one point off for me. Four is still really good. It's better than average. I would recommend it to people to watch for sure. Uh, hey, speaking of recommendations, we like to recommend some things if you like this. Be sure to check out this. Maybe Boris has got some recommendations, but I've got three things to recommend people to check out. First, a movie from 1958, so an oldie, called Run Silent, Run Deep. stars Clark Gable and Burt Lancaster. Uh, there is a captain of a U.S. submarine in World War II that's sunk by a Japanese sub. And after working a desk job for a while, the captain gets a command and kind of, an, of another submarine. And goes a little like Ahab in Moby Dick. He goes on this, on this like mission to just get revenge on this Japanese uh, submarine captain. So there's a lot of internal conflict. So I recommend checking that out if you can get past the fact that it's a little dated in terms of uh, racial politics and things like that, but it's probably reflective of what uh, World War II was like. Uh, second thing I recommend is the book I already quoted from Pavel uh, Podvig, Russian Strategic Nuclear Forces from 2001. Terrific reference guide on the Russian military in terms of its nuclear forces, land, sea, air, all of that stuff. Uh, one of the best books on this subject. And the three, I would recommend a book called Big Red, not about the chewing gum. It's about three months on board a Trident nuclear submarine from 2011, written by Douglas C. Waller. A great tale of what it's like to live on these submarines, kind of the lifestyle, the mission, all the things that kind of go into that. I recommend that movie, that book. It's a, it's a quick read and it's a fun one. Boris, you got anything to recommend for us? Yeah, and um, I, I will. Uh, I believe this will be made in the uh, in the notes section of the podcast. But I do think that uh, if you did enjoy the um, conversation about sort of the life aboard the Russian vessel, the um, series of blog posts that the Russian Navy blog did about the subject would be a great uh, uh, interest to you. Some really. Uh, funny stuff in there, but also the stuff that yeah, that you will find interesting as far as uh, how does the overall sort of command uh, work on a Russian uh, surface co combatant ship versus a Western surface combatant ship. Cool. Okay. Uh, any Tom Clancy book you'd recommend? Because uh, you like to hunt for Red October, but do you any other? Yeah, I guess uh, there is a nuclear component to that as well. So um, if they make a movie, you can cover it as well. But The Bear and the Dragon, mm. that would be, uh, I think, my uh, favorite from uh, uh, from Clancy. But uh, that's where the U.S. Yeah. and uh, that's where Russia and China go to war. Yep, exactly. And Jack Ryan is now. Been promoted to president yeah, of the United right, States. Promoted, yep. Yeah. There's uh, the got his uh, the got passed into GSSES or whatever that's <laughs> um, from uh, from the analyst position. Is is some of all fears a book as well? Uh, yes, it is a book. Is it a good one? Yeah. Um, I, you know what? I have not actually touched that uh, in 15 to 18 years. I believe I liked it when I re read it first, but okay, quasi, never quasi recommendation, quasi, maybe, quasi, maybe, but definitely yeah. the 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 dragon and the bear, the bear and the dragon. Uh, great, cool. Well, Boris. Uh, thanks for hanging out here in Las Vegas with me, and thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, I appreciate you coming on, and hope you had a good time. Thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure, and uh, I love the, all the work that you're doing here. Cool. Well, let's go back, uh, hang out in Vegas. I know uh, we, we did a little bit of gambling, but it was mostly we went to the Mob uh, History Museum and uh, Hoover Dam. So let's go find out what other nerdy thing we can do in Las Vegas, right?
Absolutely. Onwards. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Super Critical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or want to tell us what we got wrong or whether or not you want to have Boris back on the podcast, let us know. A couple ways you can contact the show. Visit our website at supercriticalpodcast.com for links to all our episodes. There's a contact page. And there's also other resources relating to today's show. Uh, on Facebook, facebook.com slash supercriticalpodcast. Hey, we're also on Twitter at nuclearpodcast. And I check my email account, supercriticalpodcast at gmail.com. If you enjoy the podcast, if you enjoyed any of Boris's uh, dry wit, uh, we'd appreciate if you went on uh, iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and give the show a subscription and a rating, possibly a five stars, say five pings. That'd be great. Uh, it would help us to grow the show. Until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer. And Boris. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one. Super Critical.